Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week I do my very best to explore these ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out all of our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Happiness means to me that my internal condition is in alignment with my external circumstances and that I feel a connectedness between those two. I find happiness through letting go of my strict hold on expectations. I find happiness when I'm present in the moment because I'm not looking into the future and, uh, you know, overanalyzing the past. I can realize that everything in this moment is exactly what it's meant to be and that I'm, I'm okay. And oftentimes I find most happiness when I'm regular with my meditation practice. I find happiness through listening instead of responding. There's nothing left to be done. I don't need anything. I realize that I truly have all that I'd ever need and I'm not seeking anything outside myself. Contentment. Happiness. I mean, what comes after the fame, the big job, the money, the power? I mean, why do we seek these things if not in the end for happiness? I mean, this is what I'm continually pondering, is how to find it. Why is it so difficult to find it in our modern society? And admittedly, this is self-indulgent, perhaps even distasteful, given everything that I have. On the other hand, I too wield this double-edged sword of consciousness that makes me painfully aware that everyone that I know and love, including myself, will eventually die, decay, and return to dust. And perhaps it is this looming, brooding awareness of my own mortality, of our collective mortality, that stokes this need for us to unlock this mystery of happiness. Now, there are many practices that are well documented. There are spiritual texts, both ancient and modern, to poke at this subject. I would also highly recommend reading Yuval Harari's tomb, Sapiens, for insight into this, I suppose, somewhat dodgy subject. Now, one way to poke at contentment is to determine what paths are fruitless, what does not work. And, you know, so many of us are trudging dutifully, commuting in stultifying traffic to jobs that are unfulfilling, that limit our potential, all in service of what? Of a wage. And the ironic thing is that a wage itself has no inherent value, and nor does it even really exist. I mean, of the $60 trillion that are generated across the world every year, 54 trillion of those are just ones and zeros bopping to and fro on computer servers. The other $6 trillion in notes and coins, I mean, what are you going to do with those? I mean, roll one up and snort something up your nose. I'm sure if that ever happens anymore. Or in an act of ridiculous literalism, actually burn it. Um, Money is just a construct. 
based on an intersubjective reality. It's only worth something to you because it's worth something to me. It's only worth something to me because it's worth something to everybody else. The wage that we work so hard to earn is only valuable in that it is convertible and transferable to the acquisition of goods and services um, that in our modern consumerism promise to unlock unbridled joy, a, a new apple red Ferrari, a Greco-Roman mega mansion with colonnades and naked statuary spurting water forth from bosoms like Mike Tyson's tiger. Is there any limit? I mean, of course, we don't need a social scientist like Brene Brown to tell us there's no correlation between wealth and happiness. The research is in on that, unless essentially you're living in persistent and acute pain or below subsistence levels, essentially not being able to provide for you or for your family basic things like food and shelter, then there is no correlation between one's economic position and happiness. And even though I sense that I know this and you know this and collectively we know this, on and on we eat the sugar of capitalism like a nine-year-old on Halloween, and I have one, I've seen it. I mean, we're programmed almost religiously. I mean, our dominant Western religion, one could argue, is capitalism. And like other religions, capitalism holds out this great promise of paradise. But unlike other religions, you don't have to wait to the afterlife to get there. You can have it like cheeseburgers and oil changes. You can drive right up and get it while you peruse Amazon to buy a you know, pair of trousers. Unlike other religions, we seem quite happy to adhere to the tenets of capitalism. We just consume. We consume awful food that makes us fat and then the diet products to lose weight. I mean, there's no need for charity, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, right? What social scientists will tell you is that there is a high correlation between happiness and connection, um, between tight family and tight communities. However, capitalism and I suppose social democracy or neoliberalism on some level has also undermined that by kind of endlessly sanctifying and empowering the individual in every way. I mean, few of us, you know, just stay and go to our local community college or stay around and work for the family business. I mean, we don't find our mates at church. We, um, we find them on Tinder or in bars, not through our parents. And, you know, through technology and globalism, we're more likely to be in some sort of passionate exchange in our echo chamber with someone that lives halfway across the globe uh, than even know our neighbor's name. And, but in the end, like, who's going to help you when you have a flat tire and you have to pick up your daughter from school? I mean, who are you going to call? You're going to email the person in Guam? I think not. And so this is, these are the challenges. These are the things that are undermining our possibility for happiness in the modern age. I don't want to just throw capitalism under the bus. It's obviously been highly effective more than any other economic system at bringing people out of 
poverty, but unfortunately it has created uh, a value system and structures that promote this notion that you are not enough and then market endlessly to compensate for your not enoughness. And there are not enough resources to continually grow and grow and grow. Now, you know, you can look around the world around and find places that have a high proportion of happiness. Like, for example, the blue zones where people are thriving cognitively and physiologically into their 90s and hundreds. And one of the reasons why they're doing that is they're free of chronic disease, they're free of anxiety, but they have strong, strong community and they do not have this consistent underpinning of consumption, consumption, consumption. Now, a biologist might have a completely different approach to the notion of happiness. I mean, instead of happiness being sort of a product, a product of external circumstances, um, like we've just discussed, a biologist might contend that happiness is completely internal, simply sort of a reflection of one's own biochemistry, that happiness is the feeling of positive and pleasurable sensations in your body that are brought through um, the release or the emission of certain hormones or neurotransmitters um, naturally occurring opioids, if you will, um, ones that you've heard of, such as oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, uh, endorphins, that rush that you get after um, you exercise. And I, I do, while I do subscribe to this idea that hormones and neurotransmitters obviously, our biochemistry obviously has huge effect on our sense of well-being. I also might posit the question of like, what are the external circumstances that actually affect our biochemistry? I mean, we've often heard about, uh, is it not like the, the connection that a mother feels for her newborn that releases the oxytocin? You know, are we not active participants through our behavior and actions in our own biochemistry? I mean, neuroscience has looked pretty closely at the brain on charity. You know, being philanthropic actually triggers the release of dopamine in your brain. Ironically, it's not correlated to the amount of giving. I mean, the best way to actually be happy through philanthropy is to give little denominations very, very often. This will keep you on sort of an IV drip um, of dopamine. So I do think that there are these, uh, there is a correlation between your actions, right action, um, and your biochemistry, that there are things that you can engage in if you seek community, if you give, if you engage in selfless service, then you can actually have an effect on your biochemistry and enjoy these feelings of pleasantness um, and pleasure. Now, there's also sort of beyond your biochemistry, I think there's humans have an incredible um, ability to sort of delude ourselves in some ways into happiness. And one of the ways that we do this is by giving our lives sort of a sense of purpose and meaning. I mean, this was, you know, at the core of 
Victor, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, this is kind of our purpose here on earth is to find meaning through work, through connection. And he even argues um, through suffering. Now we may, for example, devote our lives to working for a nonprofit that is focused on um, sustainability, uh, environmentalism, regeneration. Um, and because we have sort of an intersubjective agreement, sort of a mutual understanding that that is a life of meaning, that society has agreed that devoting yourself to a cause um, gives you purpose. We are excellent in actually transcending our own biochemistry in some ways with a greater sense of meaning or purpose to our lives. Um, there's this notion uh, around kind of existentialism of essentially authenticity. Authenticity at its core here is essentially aligning your life's actions and works with your deepest held beliefs and ideals despite whatever external circumstances may exist. So existence precedes essence. It's a core of uh, existentialism, living an authentic life. Now, obviously, for millennia, people have looked to religion for a sense of happiness and contentment, though I think more and more in the modern age, people have become disaffiliated from institutional religions because they recognize a certain sort of perversion, manipulation of the teachings of Christ or Muhammad for the accumulation of wealth and power. And they are looking elsewhere into newer spiritual texts, New Thought Christianity, New Ageism on some level, um, the Human Potential Movement, Wayne Dyer, Marianne Williamson, A Course in Miracles, you know, etc. I mean, many of us don't love the notion that all we are is flesh and bone, nor do many of us feel that it makes sense, that essentially we are having a temporary human experience, but essentially we are spiritual beings. We are limited by our five senses and our special ability to kind of perceive things with those five senses, that there is a life beyond what we can see and touch and feel and hear and taste, that there is an infinite soul, that we are born with a divine nature, that this notion that Muktananda says that which is real never changes. I mean, we that we are convinced many times that we are our bodies, but our bodies are consistently changing and that eventually, as I've noted, we will, our physical reality will end. And we are drawn instinctively to a notion that there is something about us that is infinite, that has no beginning, that has no end, that is outside of time and space and form and location, and that we engage in practices like meditation to cultivate that that we find silence as something that is infinite to find this portal to the other side. And, you know, Marianne Williamson, for example, would argue 
that we have an infinite soul, that we have a divine nature outside of, as Lao Tzu would call the world of the 10,000 things, the material plane, that we have something within us or outside of us, if you will, that is infinite, that is outside of time and space, that is this infinite soul, which is love, and that is experienced through the virtues of compassion, forgiveness, charity, empathy. Now, when we cultivate those qualities in ourselves, we connect to a shared and singular consciousness that makes us feel connected, that gives us a sense of community. Brene Brown says that spirituality is not an individual path, it's actually recognizing that we are all connected by a power that is greater than us. And I'm, I am very attracted to this notion that happiness or the cultivation of happiness is actually um, that I have a lot of free will in that cultivation, in that search, and that if essentially I can find and cultivate my infinite soul, that I can achieve levels of happiness. Now, I think that there is an interesting relationship between living a spiritual life in order to find contentment and happiness and the biologist's depiction and understanding of happiness is simply a product of your biochemistry. Now, you can essentially cultivate your infinite soul. You can subscribe to the notion that God is the love within you, and you can experience that love through compassion, through empathy, through forgiveness, through charity, that essentially... Um, you can walk in the footsteps of the ascendant host that the angels that you wish to attract into your life will appear when they recognize themselves in you, that you can live from your highest place, that you can cultivate your better angels. But essentially, is this compassion, is this charity simply an impacting your biochemistry? Um, are you simply endlessly engaging in acts of virtue in order to have a positive hormonal or biochemical reaction inside of your body? Is essentially all you're doing, giving, engaging in selfless service to sort of trigger events of serotonin or dopamine or oxytocin. Um, and this, this might be an argument that a Buddhist would make. I mean, Buddhism, if you look at it, no religion has studied and looked at happiness as closely as, as Buddhism. And, you know, we know the story of, you know, Siddhartha born some 2,500 years ago to a very kind of wealthy um, family in Nepal who lived his early life in a guarded castle and then eventually was able to, to go and experience the world. And of course, what he saw was a lot of suffering, a lot of famine and death, and essentially over time, uh, meandering peripatetically through India, um, you know, developed his four noble truths, essentially that life is dukkha or mental dysfunction or suffering 
and that this suffering arises directly from desires or from craving and that this dukkha this these cravings can be eliminated by essentially following an eightfold path um, that that involves right action and meditation mindfulness intention etc and that there are levels of essentially deep concentration which he called dhyana um, um, that essentially free you from suffering free through eliminating cravings and what this brings about is equanimity a sort of a sense of serenity of peace of mind now it feels a little bit if, if contentment is really just equanimity if happiness is equanimity i mean that feels not bleak but in, in some ways slightly bland i mean i'm not sure that like i want my um my happiness to sort of taste like my mother's tuna casserole <laughs> which she made me every week when i grew up um, i sort of see happiness as much more energetic and infused with passion um, but this is very contrary to essentially the buddhist notion that like to actually free yourself from suffering the end result is this sort of golden mean this middle way this kind of equanimity this evenness and in some ways, while a Buddhist might argue that happiness comes from within, um, just like a biologist, um, I think a Buddhist might say that, well, honestly, if we're, we're looking for true contentment, that we need to transcend in some ways our biochemistry. We cannot um, just rely on actions that trigger certain kinds of neurotransmitters that give us a temporary ephemeral sense of solace and contentment that indeed we are looking for something more perennial more permanent and in order to do that we need to find essentially our consciousness that doesn't really have any emotional connection that emotions will come and go that will visit but you are the house that you are the subject and not the object that you are not your thoughts that you are not your feelings that you are not your emotions that you are this kind of neutered consciousness and this human reality is essentially just an experience that you're having through being able to through your five senses and through your thoughts um, experience kind of fluctuations and phenomena in the end I don't have any answers I mean what would qualify me to know anything about happiness but these are the few points that I can take away and maybe you can too which is simply do not pursue wealth and individual materialism. It has no correlation to happiness. Do not pursue the ego, uh, a life of the ego. Pursue a life of the infinite soul. Find purpose and meaning. 
do things that have a positive impact on your biochemistry. Selfless service, community connection, even if these things are only ephemeral, even if they don't last forever, they will cultivate not only positive biochemistry, but a sense of meaning and purpose. Find authenticity in your life. Essentially, align your work and actions with your ideals. If you are going to essentially hold dear and true these virtues of compassion and empathy, then align your actions and work with that. And then I would say cultiv pr cultivate a practice that frees you from desires and cravings. These are my thoughts on happiness. I'm sure they will evolve. Thanks for listening. If you have comments or questions about today's show, shoot me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. Thanks again for listening to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasno, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.